0: finale of the new ice city podcast i'm your host vincent mercogliano of the usa today network and here we are ready to wrap up episode 117 overall of this podcast and the third full season of this podcast beginning next week i'll be taking some time off to enjoy some downtime with the family and take care of a very important life event that's been nearly three years in the making. It's actually, I guess, six years since we've been together, but we've been engaged now for almost three years. And of course, that important business is finally marrying my best friend. We've been waiting patiently through COVID, which obviously delayed things for quite some time. We got engaged late in 2020 and Thought about getting married soon after that, a small ceremony, but it was important to us to have the big celebration that we felt like we deserve and we want. We both have really big families, so we wanted to be able to include everybody. So we patiently waited for the right time where things were safe and we could do it exactly the way that we wanted to do it. In the meantime, we kind of worked backwards. We had our child, my son, Vincent Jr., in 2021. We bought a house in 2022. And now in 2023, the schedule has finally cleared enough for us to be able to get this done in the way that we want to get it done. And now the big day is almost here. It feels surreal. It feels because we've waited so long, like maybe this day would never come. But now we are less than two weeks away. And I am super, super excited. It's going to be just about 200 very loud Italians and a lot of our friends from all different walks of life, a lot of different characters in that mix of people, no doubt about it, invading this small town in Maryland where my soon-to-be wife grew up. So those nice, sweet Southerners are in for quite the treat. I hope we don't misbehave too much. I hope we aren't too loud or too rambunctious for that slow-paced quiet style of life that I know they prefer down there, but I'm really excited. I know my fiance is super excited to show a lot of my family and our friends who have never been down there, where she grew up, what it's like. Going to be serving some crab that's pulled right out of the Chesapeake Bay Right there, we're getting married right on the water. Really excited for some of the food options and some of the local farms that are involved and local breweries that are involved. And we kind of handpicked exactly what we want to serve. You guys know that food and drinks and all that stuff is really important to us. And of course, we purposely picked late July to get married because that's when the hockey world goes into hibernation. The the trade-off, of course, is that it's probably going to be pretty hot, pretty steamy on that Saturday afternoon, but it's well worth it, especially to have the peace of mind. Hopefully, you never know, but hopefully that the no news will be breaking. I obviously will not be working that day, will not be checking my phone. So if something happens on Saturday, July 29th, people, I'm sorry, but I'm checking out. (laughs) And it also, because of how hot we're expecting it to be in the middle of the summer, gave me an excuse to buy myself the linen suit that I've always wanted. So Excited about that. Definitely going to be sweaty, but we're going to make the most of it. We're going to have a great time. The venue where we're getting married has ample outdoor space, which is going to be great, but also ample indoor space. We hired a band that we're really excited about. It's it's going to be awesome. It's going to be exactly the wedding that we always hoped to have. And, you know, no shortcuts. Didn't have to make any sacrifices as far as the COVID stuff. Thankfully, that is behind us now. And it's just going to be a huge celebration. So I am thrilled I am super excited, and that means, and this typically is when we cut off the podcast anyway. We usually take a break late July and August because, as I mentioned, that's when the entire league goes into hibernation. So the timing works out perfect, and of course, I'll be back at the end of the summer, probably like early September. I'll keep you guys posted on an exact date to begin season four of the podcast At that point, we'll be really gearing up for the new season to start. Training camp, I don't have an exact date yet, but it's typically mid-September. So, you know, September 15th, thereabouts, I I would probably guess at this point. I'm really not expecting much to happen while I'm gone My best guess, as I've told you guys repeatedly now, is that the only remaining agenda or item on the agenda as far as the NHL roster is concerned is signing Alexi Lafreniere. We talked about this last week. I'm not going to rehash it all here, but I'm expecting a two-year bridge deal. I certainly don't think Lafreniere is going to be looking to go long term at this point. I think he's going to want to put himself in a position where he can get a bigger payday in A couple years, especially with the salary cap expected to go up, you're seeing a lot of free agents choose that route. And of course, at this stage in his development, we're only expecting him to get better from here. So if he has a couple good seasons the next few years and shows significant progress, then he'll be in a position to command a much higher salary. I've told you guys already, I'm expecting this salary to land somewhere in that $2.5 million range because... The Rangers simply don't have much more than that to spend. Right now, they're looking at a little over $3 million in available salary cap space. So I don't think we're going to see any huge surprises or curveballs there. The caveat, I guess, would be, as I've said earlier, I don't think Lafreniere is quite as untouchable in trade talks as he was a year or two ago, but I still fully expect the Rangers to resign him. I fully expect them not to give up on him at this point or sell low on him at this point. I think he is certainly going to be on the team next year. And again, I think we pretty much know what the structure of this contract is going to look like. It's just probably a matter of a couple thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars one way or the other. That's seems to be what the haggling might be at this point and there's really no rush I mean we're looking at roughly two months until training camp starts so I don't think there is a huge amount of urgency right now of course I'm sure the Rangers would like to get this done sooner than later it would not surprise me if this news comes out any day now but we've also seen these things linger so it's hard to say definitively it'll be done as of you know August 1st or whatever the day might be but my, my hunch is sooner rather than later. And again, once that's done, other than maybe a minor signing here, filling out the Hartford roster, maybe a PTO, something along those lines, I, I think the offseason work is largely done for the Rangers. And I think we pretty much know what this team is going to look like next season. They didn't have the cap space to do anything major. We've talked about that. On every episode for a couple of months now, so they're hoping that adding a few role players that they did—the Blake Wheelers, the Nick Beninos, the Eric Gustafsons, the Tyler Pitlicks—those kind of players—that they are going to help add balance to this lineup. Guys that can fill specific roles, as opposed to just trying to collect as many talents. Slash stars like the Rangers did at last year's deadline. I think they were a little more calculated about okay, we want a guy who can, you know, be a four checking right wing in the bottom six. Let's get Pitlick. We want a guy who can be a good defensive specialist and play center and win some faceoffs on our fourth line. Nick Bonino. We want a right winger who has some scoring punch and is capable of playing in the top six. There's your Blake Wheeler. We need a left handed defenseman who can activate. In this Peter LaViolette system, push up, contribute some points, move the puck effectively. That's where you get an Eric Gustafson. So while on paper, and I'm, I'm pretty sure we answered this question last week, I, I believe it was one of the Twitter questions, but on paper, the Rangers don't look as stacked as they did last year after the trade deadline. I think they are hoping that there is a more well-rounded roster with more specific roles. Guys that will be put in positions to succeed because they won't be asked to do anything out of their comfort zone. They're going to slide right into spots where they feel like they fit based on their skill set. Now, most of all, more importantly than any of these you know, relatively minor signings that the Rangers made is that they're banking on the current core. And that's the veteran guys, the highly paid guys, as well as the young guys like Lafreniere, et cetera to perform more like they did in the 2022 playoffs as opposed to the disappointment that we saw in the 2023 playoffs. So a lot of that is going to come down to these guys simply being better in crunch time than they were in that series against the Devils. And of course, a big part of that is going to be the boost that they're hoping to get from Peter Laviolette. Now, I want to tease this a little bit. I'm not going to reveal too much, although I do want to talk about the system stuff a little bit because I find that very interesting. But I'm actually working on one final big feature story that we're going to publish before I check out for the wedding. And it is going to attempt to unpack exactly what kind of coach the Rangers are getting. Part of that is personality and how does he deal with players? How does he motivate? We've seen this guy have some fiery moments over the years in all of these different coaching stops that he's had. How will that play in the locker room? But also what are maybe some of the things that he does behind the scenes to try to build relationships with players or connect with players or get the most out of players? Cause it's not just about the yelling. Now that stuff will occur. I've had a couple of people tell me probably not as frequently as it occurred earlier on in Laviolette's coaching career, but he still will pick his moments to, Rip into guys and challenge guys and call them out. Definitely going to be expecting harder practices, I think, than what we saw under Gerard Gallant, where things were much more laid back, much more hands off. Laviolette, I think, is going to make more of an effort, including outside of the rink, to organize family events. It sounds like that's something that he's been known to do. Barbecues, team poker games, trying to include the wives and the children of the players and even the coaching staff and the management, sort of create, this family atmosphere. A few people have told me that that's really important to him. So the story is going to have some nuggets about all that kind of stuff, you know, the motivational stuff and how he tries to connect with players. But I've also, in this process of researching and making phone calls about La Violette, learned a lot about his system. And I think that this is kind of interesting. I talked to one former player of his. Uh, Scott Hartnell, who played for him, I think, five years in Philly with the Flyers and then one year in Nashville with the Predators. And he described the Laviolette system as a left wing lock. And what that essentially means is, generally speaking, now there could be tweaks, there could be in-game adjustments, there could be moments where you get away from this. But generally speaking, the way that Laviolette system is going to work is going to be the right winger and the center. You can call them the F1 and the F2 are responsible for hustling and pressuring and forechecking. Basically, when the other team is getting the puck, they are responsible for aggressively moving forward and trying to apply pressure that hopefully forces them into a mistake or a turnover, but also will strategically try to force them to send the puck up the ice on one side or the other. So basically, they'll pressure in one direction, which will then force the opposing team to try to advance the puck going in the other direction. Meanwhile, that left wing lock, that left wing is sort of going to be hanging back in the neutral zone, along with the right-handed defenseman. Those two guys are typically responsible for being at the same level, meaning equally as far up the ice, in the neutral zone, along the walls. And if the other team tries to rim a puck up the wall, well, those guys in theory should be right there to collect it. And if they start trying to move up the middle of the ice, then those guys are responsible for pinching in and making life difficult. So you've got two levels there. You've got the center and the right wing for checking, applying pressure in the offensive zone. You've got the left winger and the right defenseman in the neutral zone trying to recover pucks and then create another wave of pressure once that team is trying to get through the neutral zone. And then on the back end, you've got the left-handed defenseman who's sort of like the last line of defense, but you also, it sounds like under Laviolette, are going to be encouraging your goaltender to aggressively pay the puck. They basically want to force them to try to dump and chase. And if they dump, They want either that left-handed defenseman who's back in the defensive zone or the goalie to aggressively play the puck and flip possession back in, in this case, the Rangers' favor. So I think as far as the pressure, the aggressive style, that sort of stuff that you hear, that's how it's going to work. And then once the Rangers have possession, La Violette is going to want everybody, all five skaters, to activate in the offensive zone. There's a reason that you see defensemen put up a lot of points under Laviolette. Somebody said to me when I was working on this story, I think you're going to see even more points out of Adam Fox under Laviolette. And I also think you're going to see guys like Keandre Miller potentially make a jump under Laviolette. And what was interesting also about him, when you talk about cycling the puck, when you do have the possession of the puck in the offensive zone, is that a lot of teams will try to cycle down low, work the puck behind the opposing net, down by the circles. But Laviolette a lot of times prefers to cycle up high, sort of using your defenseman at the blue line and creating that high cycle and keeping your defenseman involved. So the defensemen are going to play a really key role here. And when you have guys like Fox and Miller and now Gustafson, and even, you know, Jacob Truba, I think could see a boost from this sort of thing. His point production was higher in Winnipeg than it has been in New York. But now maybe you see a little bit more out of him. It's really going to encourage and challenge these defensemen to be active when it comes to passing the puck and shooting the puck and being involved in the cycle. So those are some tidbits. We'll dive a little bit deeper in that story. Definitely look out for that early next week. But I thought some of the system stuff, because people have asked specifically how it's going to change under him. I think you're going to see more puck possession. I think you're going to see a lot less dumping and chasing than you saw. Under Gerard Gallant, I think you're going to see a different kind of cycle when the Rangers have the puck in the offensive zone. And I think it's going to be really interesting to watch that left wing lock, that four checking system that he has and how the Rangers are able to disrupt teams basically at every level, trying to disrupt them in, in their the Rangers offensive zone before they have a chance to advance the puck with the four check trying to pinch and disrupt in the neutral zone and collect pucks when they're trying to throw them up the boards and then seeing the goalie and that last defenseman who are back in the defensive zone also try to aggressively play the puck and flip possession that way. So a little bit of, of some of the information that we've gathered on the system. I'm sure we'll go into a deeper, like I mentioned in the story and also once we get into training camp and start seeing more of it up close in the meantime for the rest of this episode, I've decided to devote it to you, the listeners, who we do so, so, so appreciate. And in that spirit, I'm going to try and rattle off answers to as many of your questions as we have time for. I think I did this last season as well, if memory serves, for the final episode of the season, rather than worrying about a guest, especially because there's been no news in the last week for us to really talk about with any guest. So... I'd much rather just have a conversation with you guys, try to answer as many of your questions as you can, give you hopefully, you know, whatever insight I can at this point, find out what's on your mind at this slow point in the offseason and look ahead to what's coming next season. So with that, we're going to shift over to what should be a pretty long mailbag segment on this show, and then that will do it for season three. So here we go. Let's dive right into the questions. I'm literally just going to scroll through the Twitter responses and read them as we go. Try to get to as many as we can. Let's start with, and I appreciate a few of you who are saying congratulations on the, on the wedding here. Definitely thank you for that. Let's start with Mr. Mike, who wrote, I'll throw a multi-question in here. You'll definitely touch on Lafreniere, but any other possible moves that could happen? Is there still a very slight chance that Tarasenko could be re-signed? Also, which prospects not named Othman could make the squad on opening night? All right, Mr. Mike, we'll start with the first one. Is it possible that they make other moves? Yes. Is it likely? No. And uh, Tarasenko just keeps coming up. Every week when I ask these questions, people want to know what's going on with him, and Again, I understand it because he's lingering out there as an unsigned free agent, and we know, or at least I'm assuming most of you know, that he switched agents during this process. He was not happy with how the beginning of the free agency period went for him. But as far as him and the Rangers, I just don't see a path. I mean, we've talked about the numbers before, roughly $3 million in available cap space right now expecting about 2.5 of that to go to Alexei Lafreniere. I don't know how you are re-signing a guy like Tarasenko with only about $500,000 in available cap space. Now, you could say, well, he would replace somebody on the roster, and sure, that's true, but he'd be replacing somebody on the roster who makes about the league minimum. So let's call it $800,000. So $800,000 plus $500,000 You're only going to be able to offer this guy a little over a million dollars per season. Let's say 1.2, 1.3, I guess would be the max, but even like 1.3, that would leave you with zero salary cap space. So low ones is what they could possibly offer Tarasenko. I don't see any way that he is going to sign a deal for that. And remember, he's under 35 years old, so he is not eligible for any performance bonuses. So this is a guy who was unhappy that he had offers on the table from what had reportedly been about $5.5 million. So if he was unhappy about a $5.5 million offer from multiple other teams, it sounds like you think he's coming back to the Rangers for 1.2. I just don't see any way that that's feasible or possible or likely to happen at all. So Tarasenko, I think, of the unsigned guys for the Rangers, the unrestricted free agents, he is, in my mind, the least likely to return. I would give a slightly higher percentage for Patrick Kane because we know he's going to miss part of the season coming off that hip surgery. You could stash him on LTIR for... However many months you need in the beginning of the season, it sounds like it could be two or three months. And he's turning 35, I believe, in November. So my understanding is that that would make him eligible for performance bonuses this upcoming season as well. So he's a guy where coming off surgery, probably looking to prove that he still has it, maybe on a one-year type of a deal, enjoyed playing in New York, said he'd like a chance to come back to New York. That I wouldn't completely dismiss. Of course, the caveat here, or there are multiple caveats here, is that I'm sure there will be other teams out there in a position to offer him more money. And consider this, if you start him on the season, on LTIR, well, that's appealing in some ways because whatever his cap hit is during the time that he's on LTIR, it wouldn't count against your cap, when you have a player on LTIR, you are not able to accrue salary cap space. And I do believe that that's something the Rangers in an ideal situation would like to be able to do to put themselves in a position where when they do get to the trade deadline, maybe they have a little bit of flexibility to be able to go out and make a move. We talked about this a little bit last week. If the Rangers went into the season with about $500,000 in available salary cap space and maintained that for the first however many months of the season – By the time they get to the deadline, they'd be looking at over $2 million in available salary cap space, which would give them a little wiggle room to not make a huge addition, but bring in somebody who might be useful for them. Now, they could look at Kane as the guy who they think would be most useful for them. And again, maybe they revisit this. I do think that there is definitely a better possibility with him than Tarasenko, but I would still not put those odds very high because I think there are a lot of hurdles here. And quite honestly, I'm not even sure how much the Rangers want to have him back. They might feel like that little bit of salary cap space that they have left, especially if they accrue as they get to the deadline, might be better served on a different kind of player, especially now that they have Blake Wheeler. Another guy who's a point producer, but is getting up there in age and might be limited in some ways. Do you really want to add another guy who's up there in age, might be limited in some ways, doesn't skate as well as he used to, all those all those kind of things? You know, we'll see. I, I don't want to say definitely no on that one. I'm more inclined to say definitely no on, on Tarasenko, but Kane is a long shot still, I would say, at this point. And the other guy who probably, I think, has the best chance of those three is Tyler Mott, because if he were willing to take a deal around $1 million, I think he's been looking for a little bit more than that. He made, I believe, $1.35 million last year. I don't think the Rangers are willing to go that high, but if they could get him for, let's say, $1 million, well, maybe that guy would be somebody who you could add to the roster and replace him with one of those $800,000 guys, a guy like Tyler Pitlick, for example, and, and use Tyler Mott in that fourth line kind of role. So Mott is interesting because he's still lingering out there. I wouldn't dismiss him. I would sort of rank them in that order. I think Mott would be the most likely, although it seems like the Rangers are content to move on from him, at least for now at the time being. I think they're satisfied with where their roster stands. I would rank Kane second on that list, and I would put Tarasenko a pretty distant third. I think he's the least likely. And then, of course, You know, maybe there is another guy out there who they're able to get on maybe a two way contract, maybe a league minimum type of contract, maybe a PTO type of contract. Like those are still very real possibilities, I think. But as far as a big splash and again, the name everybody keeps bringing up to me is Tarasenko. I don't want to get your hopes up for that one. I wouldn't get your hopes up for that one because I don't think it's happening. As for the other part of your question, Mr. Mike about which prospects not named Offman could make the squad on opening night. If you still consider Zach Jones a prospect, I know he doesn't have rookie status anymore. He won't be included in our prospect rankings that are coming up later this summer. But Jones, I think, is if he's on the team, if he isn't traded, almost certainly going to make this roster, pretty much definitely going to make this roster because, as I explained previously, they're not going to expose him on waivers. So I would definitely say Jones, and I would say that The next most likely, probably even more likely in some respects than Offman, because he's a year older, a year more advanced in his development, just played a full season in the AHL, would be Will Cooley. So I think those are probably your your most likely prospects to make this roster. Cooley and Offman, I think, are the closest, but I would probably say Cooley might stand a little bit of a better chance than Offman, unless... There's an injury in the top nine. If there's an injury in the top nine during training camp or preseason or something like that, then I think Othman's chances would drastically increase because there's more upside there. I think he's a guy who, especially when you're projecting long term, has a better chance of being a top nine NHL forward than Cooley. But Coolly, I think just as far as where they stand in their development right now, because of his year of professional hockey experience, is probably slightly ahead of Othman in the pecking order, just in terms of ranking odds of making the squad on opening night. All right, let's get to our next question, which comes from Nikki Kirschner, who wrote, "Thanks for another great season of New Ice City. What were your top two or three key takeaways?" from this season. You know, recency bias is probably a thing here because as I think about what we learned about the Rangers this season, obviously the first thing that comes to mind is the playoffs and the way that they went out. And whether it is team speed when you're talking about actual foot speed, actual skating, or team speed if you're talking about just the pace that the Rangers play at, the decision making, how quickly they move the puck, you know, how quickly they execute whichever system it is that they're playing. Both of the, It's probably a combination of both of those things, I think, in my mind. But that is one of the big things, is I really do question moving forward, do this team, does this roster have what it takes to play at the high pace at the physical pace, at the intense in your face for checking every shift, like your life depends on it. Kind of pace that I believe wins in the playoffs and has the most success in the playoffs. That would be one of my key takeaways. I really do wonder if the Rangers have that in them, given the lack of roster flexibility and given the fact that we know they're proceeding at least for now with pretty much the same core of players. So I'm looking at Artemi Panarin. I'm looking at Mika Zibanejad, Chris Kreider. You can go on down the line. Pretty much the whole roster. This includes the young guys too. Lafreniere, Kako, Heedle. Do those guys collectively have the makeup to be a championship team? I think we have serious questions about that given how the playoffs went last year. Given how uncompetitive they looked like they were at times in that series against the Devils given how much they looked like they were a step behind the Devils, especially as that series wore on. So that certainly is one of my key takeaways. I'm really curious if that system that we just talked about in the first segment with Peter LaViolette is going to give them the necessary boost to up their game in those moments. So that is one of my primary takeaways from this past season. As I think about individual players You know, Igor Shosturkin comes to mind because he looked so human for those first few months of the season, but that finished really, really strong. So I definitely came away feeling like there was some resiliency shown there on his part. He showed that he's not perfect. He can't be Superman and play at that level that he played at during that 21-22 season all the time. But things were looking bleak for him for a while. He definitely seemed to be beating himself up and maybe having some issues with how he was coping with his struggles, but he bounced back in a strong way in those last couple months of the season and was certainly the Rangers' best player in that playoff series against New Jersey. So you still come away from that season feeling like Igor is a great backbone to have, one of the best goalies in the world, and probably the biggest reason that you give the Rangers a chance at winning a Stanley Cup sometime in the near future. Another tremendous season for Adam Fox, Norris Trophy finalist again. So you're seeing some of these guys who are sort of not quite, I mean, I guess you could sort of call them veterans, but they're not, you know, 30-plus guys like Kreider and Zabanajad and some of the other core members of this team, Panarin. You know, they're sort of more in that middle ground. They're a little bit older than the Kakos and the Lafreniers and the Heatles. So those guys are showing you that they really can be pillars for this franchise. They really can be go-to players for this franchise. It's really about, I think, a lot of the players around them moving forward. So that would certainly be a positive. Felt really good about the strides that I saw from Philip Hedel last season. I think of those three young forwards that we spend so much time talking about, Hedel probably showed the most progress. I still think there's another gear for him to get to, I think those 22 goals could easily be 32 goals for him if he sort of puts it all together on a more consistent basis and really keeps pushing the pace with his speed and becoming a better all-around player. I think there's another gear for him to get to. So those would, I guess, be some of the key takeaways. I'm sure there's stuff that I'm, I'm missing because I'm just thinking about this off the top of my head, didn't prep for that. But those are a few things that come to mind there. All right, let's go to our next question which comes from Ian Weinberger, who wrote, do you think the new staff will experiment with the D pairs? A potential Miller Fox pair seems like it could be highly successful and pairing Lindy with Truba might help Truba as well. Ian, my gut tells me probably not. I think there are... Many reasons why the Rangers would stick with the deep pairs that they have. Obviously, Miller and Truba had some struggles last season, but I thought they were better in the second half. And I think moving forward, you expect Miller to continue to get better. I think also Truba now having a year with the C on his chest under his belt. You know, I don't want to say that being the captain had a huge effect on his play last season, but I do think that it adds a whole nother element. It adds a whole nother list of responsibilities for him. And I'm sure that there had to be a period of adjustment in dealing with that. I know when we spoke with him on breakup day, he felt like it was a big learning experience for him and he'll be better for it moving forward. And, Again, I know these guys really love playing with each other. Miller and Truba have a great relationship. They have a lot of chemistry on and off the ice. And we know Fox and Lindgren have a great relationship. Those guys are like best friends. So I think if you ask the players, if LaViolette is going to take into consideration what the players want, I think they would probably prefer the D pairs to remain the same. Now, on the other hand, LaViolette coming in. We don't know exactly what his thought process is on any of these lineup decisions. We have not discussed the lineup with him very much at all. We've only really had one press conference with him, and that was a big mob scene where everybody was only able to really ask one question each. So we haven't had a chance to really dig in deep on his philosophies or how he views this roster and how he thinks the various pieces fit best. So nothing would surprise me. Maybe he's sitting there. As he's prepping this offseason and writing out lineups on wherever he writes them, notepad, computer, whatever, and maybe he really does like the idea of Miller and Fox, that would be a dynamic, dynamic pair. And if you're just looking for upside and you're trying to put together the best possible top pair that you can put together, you could make a compelling argument for those guys, but... If I was placing a bet, I would think it's more likely you're going to see the D pairs start the way that they have been the last few years and then adjust from there if needed. If Miller and Truba get off to another slow start, then I think the calls for changing the D pairs will become a little bit louder. But LaViolette coming into a a new team might want to lean on what the guys are most comfortable with in that situation. I think the forward lines are much more up in the air but I think the D pairs, I think it's probably like a 75% chance that they're going to remain the same to start the season and then adjust if needed. But we'll see. I think it's an interesting question. And I'm very curious to see what Laviolette's answer for that is going to be. All right, let's go to our next question, which comes from Jason Silberman, who wrote, what role do you see Zach Jones playing this year? If he doesn't win the third pair left-handed defenseman role, is it better for him and the Rangers to have him play sporadically as a seventh D, or do they explore a trade while he still holds some value? I definitely think a trade is a real possibility here. Absolutely. We saw it happen with Nils Lundqvist last year. It was clear there was no spot for him in the Rangers lineup, and I think that necessitated the trade. And as we saw, Chris Drury was able to get a nice return for him in netting a first round pick. And that first round pick ended up being pretty valuable for the Rangers because they were able to use it to acquire Vlad Tarasenko at the trade deadline while holding on to their own draft pick and then still having a first rounder that they were able to go and use on Gabe Perot. So I thought that was a nice bit of business from Chris Drury there, especially when you consider who was ahead of Nils Lundqvist on that right-handed defenseman depth chart with Fox Truba and Schneider all kind of locked in place. Now, I don't think it's as obvious of a situation to trade Zach Jones here because there's a a few more question marks on the left side of the Rangers' defense. Obviously, you feel pretty comfortable with Lindgren and Miller as your top two on the depth chart there. And Miller just got his new contract. He, again, upside-wise, talent-wise, skill set. I think he is your most coveted left-handed defenseman right now. Lindgren, though, is entering the final year of his contract. And I believe strongly that the Rangers would love to keep him. And I think there's at least a pretty good chance that they will. But knowing that he's entering the final year of his contract, keeping a guy like Jones around does give you a little bit more depth, a little bit more flexibility. And Eric Gustafson, who I very much believe is the favorite to come out of camp in the lineup, playing every night or most nights, at least on that third pair, he's also only here on a one year deal. So I think long-term there are reasons to keep Jones around more so than there were with Lundqvist. But also as you touched on, the likelihood is that he is not going to be in the lineup on opening night and probably not play a whole lot barring injury or Gusterson falling on his face or something bad happening there. So It's not a great position to have a guy that young. I think he's 23 years old, basically watching most games from the press box. So I do think that when you're talking about trade, especially if there's a team out there that really values him, like if somebody comes along and offers the Rangers a first round pick like they got with Lundqvist, then I absolutely think you do that deal. But if really all you're getting are second and third round picks or middling kind of prospects in return for Jones, then maybe it makes sense to hold him. The risk you run, as you touched on here, Jason, is that if you hold him for too long, that value dwindles. And we've seen the Rangers make that mistake with prospects before. So my two-part answer here is, yes, I do think they'll explore trades, although I don't feel like it's as much of a given as it was with Nils Lundqvist last year. And then B, if he does remain with the team, I very much think, and I've, Not just this is my own thinking. This is what I've heard from sources as well, that he will make the Rangers roster because they're not going to expose him to waivers. And he would most likely be playing that seventh defenseman role. They probably would pick spots to get him in. I I think you have to do that. You can't just let him go months at a time without seeing any real game action. So I, I think you would find spots for him to play. But they brought Gustafson here to play. And he's a guy that had a lot of success with LaViolette, knows the system, and I think LaViolette is going to feel comfortable having him in the lineup, especially as a little bit more of a veteran presence next to Braden Schneider on that bottom pair. So right now, I would say Jones most likely to be the seventh defenseman and maybe a possibility to be traded. All right, let's get to our next question which comes from Joe Albanese, who wrote, oh, there's three questions here, Joe. Wow, you're really, you're really getting in as many as you can here. All right. Well, number one, what are your Metro standing predictions? I've said this before, and I'll repeat it again for now. I have the Devils and the Hurricanes kind of as 1A, 1B If the Hurricanes lock in Vladimir Tarasenko, or if they're able to pull off an Eric Carlson trade, it definitely sounds like the Hurricanes are still out there hunting for maybe one more big addition. I might give them the slight edge. But on the other hand, the Devils, I think, are still lingering in the goalie market. Whether it's John Gibson from Anaheim or Connor Hellebuck from Winnipeg, if the Devils go out there and get themselves a bona fide number one goalie then that might push the Devils ahead. I I really like what the Devils have done so far this offseason with re-signing a few of their key guys and going out and getting Tyler Toffoli. I also thought they made out pretty well with the Damon Severson trade. So I really like where the rosters are at for the Devils and the Hurricanes. In a lot of ways, you could look at them as two of the front runners in the Eastern Conference. Obviously, the Florida Panthers are still out there coming off of that great run that they had. The the Maple Leafs have made some changes. I still feel like we're very skeptical about how far they can go in the playoffs. Does Tampa Bay have a bounce back season in them? There, There are still clearly some teams in the Atlantic that are forces to be reckoned with. But the Hurricanes and the Devils right now both look like Stanley Cup contenders. The Rangers, I think, in many respects, are a Stanley Cup contender as well. But they just got beat by the Devils In the first round of the playoffs, the Devils, to me, very much so looked like the better team, even though that game or that series went a a full seven games. So because of the limited roster flexibility that the Rangers had, they weren't able to go out and make huge additions. I do like the additions that they made, given the cap constraints that they had, but I would probably rank them third in the Metro division. And then who finishes fourth? You know, that's a really, really interesting question. I think Pittsburgh is still a threat. I always feel like they're a threat. Obviously, they're aging, but do they have maybe one more run in them now that Kyle Dubas has come in and added a few pieces for them? So to me, I might look at the Penguins as a slight front runner to finish fourth, maybe sneak into the playoffs. I guess you still throw the Islanders in there as well, especially with Sorokin in goal. He, in my mind, probably should have won the Vesna. This past season. So I think Pittsburgh and the Islanders are probably fighting for that fourth spot if I had to make a guess today. And then Columbus, I think, has gotten better, but I still don't know if I would put them ahead of Pittsburgh or the Islanders. And then the last two teams in the division are probably Washington and the Flyers. Washington, I think, is slowly starting to wrap their minds around rebuilding here. And then I think the Flyers are probably the last place team in that division. All right. What was your next question here, Joe? What's your favorite type of sandwich to get from an Italian deli? Oh, I've been asked this question before. I don't have a favorite. I know it's a lame answer. I, I love so many different varieties of sandwich and I like variety. I'm not the kind of guy who goes and places the same order every time. I'll tell you what I got yesterday. I went to one of my favorite delis, more of a nostalgic deli. It's a place my grandfather used to take me all the time when I was a kid. Yesterday, old school Italian deli. I got prosciutto with provolone, hot cherry peppers, lettuce, oil, and vinegar on Italian whole wheat bread. That was delicious. So I certainly like all those different kinds of salty, unhealthy Italian pork made cold cuts. Uh, Those are always a favorite of mine, but I can go in a lot of different directions. I love a good hot roast beef sandwich, a good Philly cheesesteak, A good chicken cutlet sandwich, although I'm I'm pretty particular about my chicken cutlet sandwiches, it has to be hot and crispy. I don't want those cold, soggy things that are sitting in those deli windows for a couple days at a time. Keep those out of my sight for sure. And, you know, around my house, we try to keep it healthy. We keep a lot of turkey. I make a lot of different varieties of turkey sandwiches. I like to throw different veggies and stuff on there. Spinach, arugula, roasted red peppers, red onion, all that kind of stuff. So we do a lot of turkey at home. As well. I, I like a lot of different stuff. I'm, I could go on for, for a long time about that, but that prosciutto sandwich was pretty good yesterday. All right. Third question from Joe is if Jones outplays Gusterson, could you see Schneider jumping to the second pair and Truba dropping down to the third to help Jones? Similar tactic to Miller's development. I don't see them dropping Truba to the third pair unless he's really struggling. You know, that's the captain of your team. That's a big leader for your team. And even though I think those type of things probably shouldn't factor into these decisions sometimes, I think realistically it does. So I think that Schneider would have to be playing really well and Trupa would have to be really struggling for you to get to that point. I think it's pretty unlikely. OK, let's get to Anthony Aggie, who wrote, what are the performance bonuses on the contract's that have them? All right. Well, a quick trip to Cap Friendly or Puckpedia could answer this question for you, but I can run through it very quickly. You got Blake Wheeler, who's got 300,000 in performance bonuses potentially. You've got Braden Schneider, who has 400,000 in performance bonuses potentially. And you've got Jonathan Quick, who has 100,000. So that is less than a million in total performance bonuses just based on the roster that we're looking at right now. Now, of course, if Brendan Othman makes it, he's got another 450000 in potential performance bonuses. If Will Cooley makes it, he's got, it's like $82,000 in, in potential performance bonuses. So there are a few other guys who could factor in there if they end up making the roster some of those prospects. But they're not in the position that they were in in recent years where they were looking at going over the maximum allotment of performance bonuses, which I think this year is like $6.2 million or something like that, the Rangers aren't there. So they're in a pretty, I think, safe spot with the performance bonuses. It's not going to be, I don't think, a huge factor. Although, because of how tight they might be on the salary cap, which we're expecting, they could end up going slightly over the salary cap this season. And then what would happen is however much excess performance bonuses they have, that would roll into the next season. So it is possible that for the 24, 25 season, you're looking at a few hundred thousand in extra cap space that that's performance bonus rollover, but it's not, they're not looking at a huge nut here. They're not looking at a big risk as far as that stuff is concerned. All right. Robert Jordan asks, odds, the Lafreniere bridge deal gets announced on your wedding day. Probably very high, Robert. Uh, let, let's hope that doesn't happen. But I, I knowing my luck and the way these, these things always tend to go, I could definitely, definitely see that happening. All right. Coco Costanza wrote, Why is everyone down on this team? They are deeper than they were last year. And while it wasn't a massive amount, the kids did technically have more productive years, Kako and Hedl especially plus a coach with an aggressive system that's better for five-on-five play is the reason the Devils series. Yeah, absolutely. If people are down on this team, it's because of the way that it ended. I just talked a little while ago about recency bias. The last time we saw the Rangers, they were kind of going out with a whimper with such sky-high expectations. Losing in the first round was a huge gut punch, not just for the Rangers, but for the fans. And When you were coming off of a run to the Eastern Conference Final the year before, and then you go out and you get Patrick Kane and Vladimir Tarasenko, and you really put so many eggs in the basket for trying to win this season or now last season. Of course, I think that's why some people are feeling down on the team. And I I talked a little bit about the team speed and wondering whether this core is truly championship caliber. We know this core is definitely playoff caliber, but are they championship caliber? That's what the fans are focused on now. They've gotten to the point, I know the rebuild wasn't all that long ago, but we've gotten to the point now, especially with some of the win now moves that Chris Drury has made since taking over, where the bar is very high. The expectations are very high. The Stanley Cup drought for this franchise is about to hit 30 years. And fans, I think, rightfully so, are looking at this roster and this team through the prism of, are they good enough to win the cup? And that I think is where maybe some of the negativity comes from because there are legitimate questions about whether they're good enough to win the cup. Are they a good team? Absolutely. Are they a playoff caliber team? Absolutely. They've proved that the last two seasons. Now it's all about, can they take the next step? And I think that might be why you sense maybe people are down on the team. I think logical, reasonable, realistic fans look at this team and understand you got a good team. It's going to be a fun season. They definitely have a chance to do something special, but the skepticism comes in when you consider, Hey, they looked a step behind that devil's team. They couldn't even make it out of the first round last year. They didn't have the salary cap space to go out and do anything major. We feel like in an ideal circumstance, you'd like to go out and get one or two more really big-time impact players for this roster, and the Rangers weren't able to do that. They had to settle more for role players, guys who are a little bit past their primes, discount kind of guys. Now, again, I think given the situation they were in, they did pretty well with what they did in free agency. But I also think that I wouldn't look at this team right now, at least in this moment, I got a lot of time to mull it and think about it as the summer goes on, but I wouldn't look at them as a favorite for the Stanley Cup. I think they're a top 10 team in the league. I think if a lot of things click for them, especially the development of young guys and Peter Laviolette's system fitting this roster well, if all that stuff happens, then you know maybe we change our tune. And maybe as we get into the springtime, we are looking at the Rangers as a Stanley Cup favorite. But I think when you lose in the first round, people are rightfully wondering what went wrong. And how can this team get better? And getting better is going to be based on a lot of internal things clicking. It's not necessarily going to be a lot of outside help beyond La Violette. And of course, you hope the wheelers and guys like that help. But now it's about, okay, is this team? I'm sure they're very motivated. I know they're very motivated by what happened last season. But can they turn that disappointment? Can they turn that motivation into propelling themselves to new heights This coming season. That's that's where the intrigue lies, and that's probably where some of the skepticism comes from. That might be why I think the impression and and I sense it, too. Trust me, I get emails and Twitter mentions and all that kind of stuff where fans do seem a lot less optimistic right now than they did at this time last summer. But again, that's based on what we just saw. At this time last summer, they were coming off a run to the Eastern Conference Finals where they very much exceeded expectations. Now they're coming off a first round exit where they very much didn't live up to expectations, especially when you consider the trade deadline move. So I think that's where that comes from. Kind of understandable, kind of to be expected, but you know, this narrative could very much change once we see how this team performs on the ice. That will be the true test. And you know, I think if there is a sense of, being down or whatever you want to call it. It's because this team has done a pretty good job in the last couple of years of raising the bar. So now it's up to them to do whatever they can do to jump over it. All right, let's get to our next question. comes from Crumbs O'Bread, who wrote, out of necessity, do you see Philip Hedl moving to right wing on line two? You know, this is something the Rangers have flirted with Each of their past two coaches, David Quinn tried it a little bit and Gerard Glant tried it a little bit, but the Rangers have never really committed to it. I do think that there is some valid arguments as far as would he be better on that side. We know about the speed. We know about the faceoff struggles. It would take some of the defensive responsibilities off of his shoulder. I think there are reasons that it could maybe open things up for him and benefit him. But I don't see it as a necessity at this point. And especially, I think, when you look at the way the Rangers are built down the middle right now, they're built to have Mika Zabanajad, Vincent Trocek, and Hedl as their primary centers, their top three, their guys right down the middle who are kind of the spine of this forward group. In many ways, they're a strength of this forward group. Obviously, we know how stacked they are at the left wing position, but for a few years, we had been wondering how the Rangers would hash out their center depth. We know they made a run for Jack Eichel that didn't materialize. They couldn't get that trade down with Buffalo. After that, they make the decision to give Mika Zibanejad the contract extension. The big contract extension kind of looks like a bargain at $8.5 million per season. They make the decision to go out and make Trotrek the top priority. ...for their offseason last summer with the idea that he could fill that second-line center void. They looked at him as an upgrade over Ryan Strom. Now, to be determined whether he stays in the second line or plays in the third line, but obviously they're locked in with him long-term. And then, based on the breakout season that Hedl was having last year, they make the decision to give him a contract extension that's well over $4 million per season. So their thinking, as far as the center position, is pretty clear, and I don't think they would have given that deal to Hedl if they felt like they couldn't continue to develop him at center. Now, again, there are reasons that maybe right wing could come into play. This is another one of those questions for Peter LaViolette that as we observe how he goes about his business and are able to ask him questions on a daily basis, we will get more answers to, but I don't see any way that the Rangers are approaching this training camp not looking at Hedl as one of their top three centers. And as we spoke about on last week's episode, to me, I think there's a case you could make that he should be getting an opportunity to play on the second line with Artemi Panarin because I think he brings some elements with his speed and with his willingness to shoot the puck and his goal scoring upside that I think would be beneficial. For a guy like Panarin, who we know loves to pass the puck so much. So he he'd eventually, could I see because of maybe certain aspects of playing center that he struggles with, why maybe a coach would consider moving him to right wing? Yes. Again, the thought obviously, at least for fleeting moments, entered the mind of both David Quinn and Gerard Gallant, but I absolutely think the Rangers view him as a center right now. That is where he has spent the vast majority of his NHL career. And again, given the contract extension that he just got, I absolutely believe that's where they intend to play him. If you move him off of center, then you're basically in a position where you need Barclay Goudreau to center your third line. And while we've seen that he can play center, I'm not sure that is an ideal situation for the Rangers. That would really kind of hurt their depth down the middle. Nick Bonino, I think, is pretty much locked in as that fourth-line center, so you're comfortable with where you're at there. But your top three centers, if you want to make this team as strong down the middle as possible, I think that has to have Philip Hedel playing center. Of course, you'd like to see him start winning more face-offs. He's under 40%, I believe, for his career And that's an area where he needs to improve, but that's not a make or break thing, I don't believe, for the Rangers at this point. Faceoffs, I think a lot of people would debate how important they are. I think there is certainly some importance to them, but I don't think that that alone would be enough of a reason to to move him off center. So, you know, he's got to get better defensively, and there's certain some other responsibilities that come with playing center that I think he needs to grow into, but... Guy made a lot of progress last year. Certainly his best season as a pro so far. And you believe that there's even more in the tank there. So I see the argument from some people. I understand why the flirtation with right wing has been there. But I don't think that it's certainly any kind of a necessity right now. I think if anything, the necessity is to keep him at center because I think the Rangers are a stronger team when he's playing well at center. All right, let's continue along here. And we have Joey's a rambling man who wrote, first off, good luck with the wedding, Vince. I'm still hoping that Othman and Cooley are vital parts this year. Do you see signings like Belize, Nash, and Pitlick blocking them? And could Matthew Robertson finally have that breakout camp? So blocking might be a strong word because I don't necessarily think that if the Rangers absolutely felt that Othman and Cooley were ready, that those guys wouldn't get the opportunity because of a a Riley Nash, a journeyman type of a player like that. And as, at least as far as Belize and Nash are concerned, I believe those guys are competing to be the 13th forward, the extra forward. I don't think those guys are going to be regulars in the lineup. And Therefore, I don't see Offman or Cooley being in direct competition with them. I don't see them blocking Offman or Cooley from making this roster. I think whoever that extra forward spot is going to be, they could have two extra forwards, but because I think it's going to be a 22-man roster, my belief is there will only be one extra forward. You typically want that to be more of a veteran guy, more of a versatile guy, more of a guy who you're not prioritizing development for. It's a guy who's you know sort of that tweener and. That's why I think that Nash or Belize or Johnny Brodzinski, someone along those lines, is a good candidate to fill that type of a role. Pitlick might be a little more in the way because right now, to me, Pitlick is kind of the 12th forward, I would argue. I think he's probably the guy who is likely to play, and if something were to happen with him, whether it was injury or poor performance, that would open the door, I think in particular, for a guy like Cooley to to possibly get a crack at this lineup. I think Cooley is probably, as I mentioned earlier, the next man up. Othman, I think they want him to get some seasoning in the AHL before they move him to the NHL level. So those guys, I think if something happens with an injury to anybody really in that top 12 forward group, would be next in line As well as if a guy like Pitlick or even maybe a guy like Jimmy VC doesn't play as well as he did last season. You know, right now we have VC and Pitlick, I think, penciled in as the wingers on the fourth line. Now, I don't think the Rangers are going to insert Brennan Othman in a fourth line role, but if for some reason you're removing Pitlick or you're removing VC, then all of a sudden you could envision a scenario where Othman inserts into the lineup and you move a guy like Goudreau potentially down to the fourth line. You feel like Goudreau can play, you know, in a few different spots, obviously multiple positions. Othman, I don't think it would be a great use of his development time to play him in a limited fourth line role. Cooley, I think there's more of a fourth liner profile in him, and I don't think he's viewed with the type of upside that Othman is viewed with. So his eventual NHL role could be in a fourth line type of position. So maybe he could get a crack at a spot like that. But yeah, I, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say blocking. I think those guys are depth pieces. You know, I think at least one of those guys that you name, whether it's Belize or Nash, is going to end up playing for Hartford this season. I think one of them could end up being that extra forward. But again, that's not a spot that I view as being an option for Othman or Cooley. Pitlick, a little bit of a different story. And, you know, I think he was brought here for a specific reason and will get the first crack at being in the lineup. But if he falters in any way, that would potentially maybe open a door for Cooley or Othman. As for Matthew Robertson, could he finally have that breakout camp? I don't think he's in a position where he's going to make this roster out of camp, quite frankly. He still has one more year on his entry-level contract. So the Rangers can still, for one more season send him to the minors without having to pass him through waivers, which again is not the case with Zach Jones. So Zach Jones, not only because I think almost anybody would tell you he is the more advanced prospect than Robertson at this point, a better prospect than Robertson at this point, certainly has been a more productive AHL player than Robertson at this point, but Zach Jones would have to clear waivers to be sent down, and the Rangers aren't going to take that risk, whereas Robertson, he's got one more year on his entry-level contract, therefore you can send him down. So I think no matter what Robertson does at camp, he's heading for the AHL to begin the season, and if he plays well there and an injury happens, he could position himself where he's in line for a call-up. I think it's certainly reaching the point where you got to see what you got in this guy at some point soon, but... You know, his camp, of course, it'll be interesting to watch from a development perspective, but from a positioning himself to make the roster standpoint, I don't see that really as an option here. All right, let's continue here. Surly Sailor has a couple questions in here. One is about Cooley and his shot of beating out a veteran for a spot this season And who would that battle be between? Again, I think for him to beat out a vet, it would probably have to be a guy like Pitlick, maybe a guy like VC. but I think he starts training camp behind those guys in the depth chart. Of the free agents left, who could you see getting an invite to camp? When you say invite, I'm thinking like PTO. You know, I think it's just because VC was a PTO guy last year, had history with the organization, was well-liked by a lot of people that remained here, that I think of guys like Derek Broussard or Derek Stepan, who I believe are still remaining out there as free agents. And I wonder, could the Rangers maybe snatch up one of those guys on a PTO type of deal? It's probably unlikely, but you know maybe you decide you want to give a guy like that a chance, bring him in, and there's really no risk to that at all. As for other PTO candidates, I think one of the main objectives, if, if there was one remaining, would be that speed element that we've discussed a lot so far. And is there a guy who's having trouble getting a contract and has limitations in other areas, but would add some of that speed? Is there a guy like that out there that the Rangers might consider on a PTO deal? I don't have a list of free agents in front of me, so it's hard for me to to throw out a name right off the top of my head. But if there was a category you were looking to check up a box on, that would probably be it. All right, let's keep going here. Eric Talvi wrote, Congrats, Vince. Hope you're not taking V Jr. on the honeymoon, especially if you want him to have a sibling. Uh, no comment there. Hoping Lavi tries new lines. Thoughts on separating Kreides and Zabanajad at 5-on-5. Five five, so Lafreniere gets top six minutes with Zabanajad or Hedel And Kreider, Trocek, and Goody form a checking matchup line. Yeah, we've talked about the possibility of Kreider, Trocek, and Goudreau forming that checking matchup line. I think that is a possibility that could be discussed. I think my gut tells me that Kreider will start in his usual spot next to Mika, and then if Lafreniere is playing well and you want to consider moving him up, that's when maybe you would think about kind of reuniting Kreider with Trocek. They did have some success for the little stretch that they played together. I believe it was in December last year. Season, so yeah, I mean, it's possible, but I don't know. I something tells me that at least initially playing Zabana in between Lafreniere and Kako is unlikely. I think we can maybe project that for the future, especially as Kreider ages and maybe loses a little bit of a step. And and you look at Lafreniere and Kako and you hope that they're going to progress and become pretty big time players for the Rangers. So certainly that's a first line that we may see at some point. Maybe it's later this season, but my hunch is that at least to start training camp, you probably see Kreider and Zabanejad. And I think probably with Kapo Kako, just because that line, especially when you look at a lot of the analytics, and I even just think from watching them, even if I didn't see any numbers at all, I felt like that line was really effective together. And the scoring production wasn't really, really top notch. I mean, they definitely outscored their opponents in their time on the ice together, but it felt like there was something there that if they had a little more runway, could have really, really clicked because their possession with the puck was really top-notch. You felt like they had a lot of possession, a lot of offensive zone time, and a lot of opportunities to do some damage. So that is kind of where I think this is going to start, but I've repeated this multiple times now. We don't know exactly what Laviolette is thinking. Maybe we will come out and see Lafreniere on the top line, whether it's left wing or right wing, to start the new season. I don't think that that would shock anybody, but if I'm placing a bet, I would think... He probably starts on the third line. I think the kid line is definitely going to be separated. And I think that there's a good chance, or at least a decent chance, that you're going to see each of those guys, Kako, Hedl, and Lafreniere, on different lines spread out throughout that top nine. So each of them would kind of have a role to play within that top nine. The lines, we talked about this at length on a previous episode, I think it was two weeks ago, but... There's still a lot to be determined there. There's still a lot of possibilities there. There aren't any obvious, obvious answers. But as I wrote in my story that came out last week, I think we can kind of make some educated guesses as to where it at least would make some sense for them to start things off and then adjust and maneuver from there, as we've seen with pretty much every coach in the history of this league. What you see from day one is probably not what you're going to see for the entire season. So you got to give LaViolette a little time to get a feel for the situation, get a feel for the individual players. And then as he gathers information and learns these guys over the course of the season, hopefully by the time you get a month or two into the season, maybe three months, whatever it ends up being, then we're able to put together a more solid opinion of not only what is he thinking, but what works best for this team. All right. I think as far as I can tell, this is one of the last ones. There's a few others in here, but I'm going to, I think, call it at this one right here because it seems to be the last one I'm seeing as far as I'm scrolling. So KYK1827 wrote, how many games do you think Will Cooley plays for the Rangers this year? And in the 24-25 lineup, how many of Cooley, Berard, Secora, and McConnell Barker are in there? Well, a lot of questions about Cooley today. Cooley definitely seems to have a lot of your interest. So Cooley, as I said before, I think is kind of like the 14th or 15th forward. I don't think they're going to use him in that extra forward, that 13th forward role. But I think if anything happens to anybody in the top 12, he very well could be the first guy inserted. So for that reason, I think you're going to see him in, let's call it 40 games this season. I think you could see him play half the season with the Rangers. That might be a reasonable number to predict. And then as far as Cooley, Berard, Sakura, and McConnell Barker, who is in the lineup two seasons from now, minimum one of those guys, right? I think Cooley would have a really good chance. He would be at the top of that pecking order right now. I couldn't see it being any more than one, than two, I should say. So one, definitely, two, maybe. Three, I think that would be pushing it too far. Also, because you have to consider Othman too. I think by that point, Othman is probably in this lineup as well. So I could see it just being Othman and then maybe Cooley with Berard and Sakura, especially maybe more in the position where they start the season in Hartford. If they play well, they get a call up. So I would probably say one of those guys that you named most likely being Cooley and then Berard and Sakura having a potential for a call-up during the season. McConnell Barker, remember, he's going to play back in juniors this season. So the 24-25 season would potentially be his first pro season. And I think he'd be in a position where the Rangers probably want to let him go to Hartford and get a year of development there. So that's how I would assess that. I think 24-25 has got to be the target date for Othman and potentially Cooley to become real lineup regulars with Berard, Socorro and that next wave playing for Hartford, vying for time, trying to sort of position themselves as a potential call-up. All right, that is going to do it for this week's episode, this final episode of season three. Thank you so, so much to everybody who listens throughout all of these Three seasons, whether you were here from the beginning, whether you've come on board recently, we so, so appreciate it. You guys are what makes this show click, you guys are what makes the show go. You guys are what keeps me pushing to do more, pushing to do better, making my passion for this job more than what it would be if I didn't have people like you who were listening and giving feedback and submitting questions and doing all the things that really make this job fun. I've told you guys this before, but it bears repeating my favorite, favorite part of this job. As much fun as it is to be at all the games, meet the players, travel, experience these different cities. I love all that stuff. I love the creative aspect of it, the writing and all that. But getting to be connected to you guys, whether it's because you hear me or I hear from you or you read what I have to write or you listen to what I have to say on this podcast, that is what makes this job what it is. That is by far the coolest part of this job. It is what I find myself feeling so thankful for every day. Even the trolls, even the haters, even the critics, You know, it wouldn't be the same even without some of you because you guys are what also keeps me striving to be better. And quite frankly, if there was none of that negativity, I would be feeling like, man, are people really paying attention to what I'm doing? (laughs) So I got advice from somebody one time who told me that, That stuff comes with the territory. And if you're not seeing enough of that stuff, then you might have to wonder, hmm, are enough people really reading or seeing or listening to what I'm doing? So everybody... Whether you're positive or negative, especially the positive people, of course, I appreciate you. I love you. I thank you so much. I hope that this is an outlet for you. I hope that this gives you enjoyment throughout your week, something to look forward to every week. It's been so much fun for me to do this podcast for three years now, ready to start year four, which will actually be my fifth season on the beat this coming year. Can't believe that, that I've been doing this now. This is about to be five seasons, which is kind of crazy, but we will be back in September to begin season four of the podcast. I wish you all an outstanding summer. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you stay healthy and safe, but I also hope that you get out there and have some fun because summer for me personally is my favorite time of year. And I certainly don't mind having a little time off coming up. So I'm going to go and get married. I'll be back with a ring on my finger. No longer an eligible bachelor, a taken man from this point moving forward. We'll see if I sound a little bit different on the podcast. You guys can let me know. But until then, thank you, thank you, thank you, and I will talk to you in just a little bit. Have a great summer, everyone.